0: Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And today we're going to go into some fundamental biology that will help you understand understand some powerful, and I do mean powerful strategies to improve your health at the most fundamental level and provide resilience, extraordinary resilience to just about any disease, including infectious diseases like we've been struggling with. So we I'm going to have this dialogue with a molecular biologist, which is my favorite discipline. And her name is Nicola Conlan, and she is, comes to us from the UK and she basically vectored out of the bad guys, the big pharma and, and did her own company to provide, uh, a strategy to improve one of the most part, important biomolecules in your body, which we're going to talk about. And you may have heard me talk about it before, which is NAD specifically NAD plus. So um, welcome and thank you for joining us today.
1: Hello, Dr. McCullough. Thank you so much uh, for the wonderful introduction and for of course having me on.
0: Yeah, yeah. So our, I'm excited to have this dialogue. We've talked before on the phone and it's good to connect with you on, on Zoom. And um uh basically uh one of your passions is NAD. So the uh and you actually uh formed a company to provide an NAD um not really a precursor, but an NIT augmenter, I guess would be the my way to describe it, because there are a lot of precursor products out there, and I've been disenchanted with them for a while, and when I heard you, your presentation, it really resonated with me, because I thought there were better strategies, and the strategies evolve from understanding of the basic science, and which we're going to dive in deep today. So... Um, why don't you give us a brief history of your training and how you were worked with, I, just, I think it was systems pharmacology, is that you, yes? you, you very yeah, often that it. and to, to yep. form an own company to apply the big benefits of, of big pharma. I mean, there are no question. They do a lot of great things. It's just that their implementation is just beyond fatally flawed, is focused on the bottom line, and which is one of the reasons you left, actually, I think, when we were talking yeah. about that yeah, so why don't you talk about that transition into into from the dark side over to uh, the nutritional supplement side?
1: ok. yeah. I, I certainly will because, um, you know, I, I have to say, A lot of people did think I was crazy when I I left my excellent, you know, job in the world of big pharma to um, start a supplement company. Um, So I'll I'll give you a bit of a a backstory of why that happened. Um, And I think, you know, as as I said, from my training, um, I have always just been really, really interested in how the body works and how it is so complex Um, Mm -hmm. I actually did my PhD in understanding how, when we take um, any molecule that goes into the body, whether that's gonna be a supplement, um a drug a, you know something that we've eaten the nutrient how does that actually go from being in our mouths to then actually ending up in the cells where our body can actually use them and um, benefit from them so that's called the bioavailability looking at bioavailability of molecules so after I did my PhD in that that sort of naturally led me um to think about you know it seems like the right thing to do to go and work in drug discovery um, because there's all this amazing science going on and surely it's the drugs companies that are the ones that are actually getting this amazing science out to the people who can actually benefit from it. So I went to um, work in big pharma and um, I actually worked for an early stage drug development company, which is the part of the drug development process where you look at what targets that you're going to um hit with a drug, basically. And there were two things I I sort of learned very early on. The first was that the drug development process was very, very long and very, very expensive. So you're looking at about 10 to 15 years on average from the work that I was doing in the lab to actually getting it to people that could benefit from it. And probably a cost of hundreds of millions of pounds to actually do that. So it was a little bit disappointing because um, the area that I was working on was really exciting. And I was sort of like, "Okay, this isn't going to benefit anyone for absolutely ages. So that was disappointing. The second thing was part of my job was literally looking at lists of molecules. So these were lists of molecules that we got back from the lab where um, our our clinical partners would be actually testing molecules to see what, what, what worked in cells and what didn't. And quite often, the top 10 molecules that worked really, really well, um, the drugs companies simply weren't interested in them because they couldn't patent them. And in order for a drug company to move forward with developing a molecule, it has to absolutely own it um and hold and hold the patent for that molecule which is understandable from a commercial perspective because they wouldn't put hundreds of millions in, of pounds into developing something that they couldn't own but from an ethical perspective i found that quite challenging because there were a lot of there was a lot of data that i saw that actually showed that a lot of the molecules that were simply being put in the bin were things that were quite well known that had good safety profiles already but they just weren't interested in developing them any further. So um, I actually decided that I was going to leave the world of pharma, um, and what I wanted to do was actually say, "Hang on a minute, we've got this amazing science that's going on. We've definitely got molecules that don't have to be drugs that have good safety profiles that could be used now, but we need to move them out of this world of pharma and, and put them into the nutritional supplement route."
0: Yeah, the the it's uh, I guess easy to understand that they wouldn't want to go into nutritional supplements because they, the the industry as a whole, not necessarily the company we're working for, but the industry as a whole is very cleverly constructed barriers to entry and obstacles (laughs) for any nutrition supplement company, essentially, at least in the United States, I'm sure it's similar in the UK and other places. Uh, If you have a, a supplement uh, it's generally considered you cannot put market or make claims on it. Otherwise, it's in a drug, and then you've got it through drug through, through drug testing, and it has the same uh, challenges of uh, barrier to entry. So, you know, they don't, they don't want to do that from practical reasons. And we see the same thing too with COVID. I mean, we have just as a failure of a commitment to integrity as an example of the industry as a whole. I mean, we had two drugs that work incredibly well that were uh, clearly approved, previously approved, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, and, and found to be of great utility for COVID-19. But that all that information was suppressed because they had bigger and better plans to launch uh, a product, a pharmaceutical product that was exponentially more, ex- and I mean exponentially, not that's not hyperbole, more profitable. Than that, I mean, probably two or three orders of magnitude, maybe even four orders. I mean, it was it made Pfizer thirty-six billion dollars last year alone uh, than um, than they could have ever hoped to make from those drugs. So, yeah, if your 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 assessment is correct. It's it's really focused on the bottom line. It's not really focused on helping humanity or lessening pain and suffering in, in the human race.
1: Yeah, it's it's a tricky one. And, you know, that is the reason why I decided, you know, as a scientist at the very beginning of this drug development process, I'm continually exposed to breakthrough science. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that gets lost in the drug development pro, pro, pro process, you know. So it was actually somebody needs to take some of this science and actually turn it into something that's beneficial that you can actually get to market pretty quickly, um, oh, yeah. But as you say, it becomes tricky with claims and things like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> For sure. All right. Well, let, enough of a framework or a background. Let's dive into the the science, actually, because we've talked a lot about NAD. Uh, NAD is an incredible biomolecule, uh, but you're the molecular biologist, so I'll let you give a description of it, and I'll maybe point some things you don't mention or reinforce it and then ask some questions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So NAD is actually something I ended up, believe it or not, working on in the drug development industry because I was actually, you know, a lower slate in drug development. I was fortunate enough to work for a company that was forward thinking, and it actually started looking at developing molecules that would improve our health span, which is the proportion of the life that we live in good health. So rather than just focusing on individual diseases, actually looking at underlying mechanisms of cellular aging and looking at slowing cellular aging so that you can improve healthy lifespan. And this is when I came across NAD, which as you mentioned, is, is an incredibly important molecule in the body. So um, going back to my molecular biology roots, as you said, NAD is important for for two critical things in the body. The first is energy production. So the conversion and the process that takes the energy out of the food we eat and converts it into ATP, which is the form of energy currency that our cells can use to survive and, and do all the functions that they need to do that process absolutely requires NAD. And without it, we simply wouldn't be alive because our bodies wouldn't be able to make any energy. And it's estimated that if we didn't have any NAD in our body, we'd literally be dead in 30 seconds, which shows how critical it is to our cells. The, th- the second thing that it's really important for is cellular maintenance and repair. So what NAD does is it almost acts as a sensor in the body. And it enables the the cell to react to changes in what we call energetic stress, which is basically how much energy or what lack of energy the cell has. So let's say things like exercise and fasting, they will reduce cellular energy. NAD will sense this and increase its levels. And this increase in the level of NAD actually tells the cell that the cell is in a state of stress, Therefore, it needs to switch on cellular maintenance and repair processes in order to survive this period of stress. So they are the two major things that NAD is known for. And because of the, these roles, it's absolutely fundamental to overall cellular health.
0: Thanks for that. And I just want to add a little bit of context to that in that anyone watching this who's taken a biochemistry course, uh, knows about NAD because it's taught. I mean, it's the fundamental basics. It's part of the Krebs citric acid cycle, and it's uh, essentially passes the electrons along in the mitochondria to produce oxidative phosphorylation and produce that ATP you mentioned. And it was first discovered, I think, in 1905 by Arthur Hayden. It's over a century ago, but we didn't, re- didn't, no one was. And when I was in school, and you know, last century. No one was thinking about this. And I think until David Sinclair in the late nineties, when he was at MIT in Lenny Garanti's lab realized that it's the fuel for these longevity proteins, the sirtuins. So that's when it started getting prominence. And I first became enamored with it in the five, six, seven years ago and started really looking at the literature on this. Cause it seemed like such an intriguing molecule, which is probably about the time you started doing that. Or when did you, when were you, When did you start working at at your your previous position?
1: Yeah, so this would have been about 2014 that I started getting involved in in the aging field. So this was a time when a lot of scientists were talking about this idea that we could slow cellular aging, but it perhaps hadn't really hit the mainstream yet. It was, it was still something that was sort of brewing in the background. And I think even scientists within our field still needed to be convinced, but that's absolutely changed. Now there isn't a single scientist that works in the field of biogerontology, which is the study of aging. And that doesn't say that you can slow biological age and, you know, things like NAD are, are a good thing.
0: Okay. So we're going to, Go deep now, and I think it's important uh, to understand why this is such an enigma, because there's a lot of hype around NAD and a lot of people promoting supplements that may or may not work as well as you think they do. And before you can begin to evaluate them, it's, it's really crucially important to understand that the, you need you to test to see, to measure NAD. And there are loads of problems with testing NAD, which makes it beyond a simple challenge to to implement a a strategy to identify what the results of your intervention are. So why don't you tell us the problems with measuring NAD? Because they are profound.
1: Yes, so NAD is is a bit of a complicated thing to measure. And the reason everyone wants to measure it is because NAD has been found to decrease with age and that's one of the the reasons why people actually want to boost their NAD back to youthful levels to be able to have the correct cellular energy and to be able to switch on these cellular maintenance and repair processes So in laboratories, and scientific laboratories, we use some um, fairly sophisticated techniques to be able to to measure NAD, Um, but now there's been an emergence of um, companies sort of saying, well, you know, send your blood away and we'll measure it for you, and the reality is... Unfortunately, as good as that would be, um, it, it just doesn't work that way. So the reasons are, is if you think of what NAD does, so NAD um, is described as a redox molecule. So what, what that means basically is it's continually flipping states. Um, so you mentioned that it carries electrons in the electron transport chain and the mitochondrial reactions. Um, and this means that by its very nature, NAD is designed to flip between different states. So it's really, really unstable. So literally, as soon as NAD is is taken out the body, you know, out in the blood, it starts to break down, it starts to break down into its precursors, it starts to change form. Therefore, if you don't do something to stop those reactions very, very quickly, what you end up measuring is not a correct reflection of what is actually in the body and in the cell. So when we measure NAD in, in the laboratory, what we have to do is make sure that as soon as it is taken out of the person, it's actually put straight on ice to stop any reactions, and then immediately prepped um, to be able to take out the cells that we want to measure the NAD from, and they are cryogenically frozen um, to stop any changes or any reactions until we actually measure NAD. And then after that, to actually work out, you know, how much NAD is in the sample, you use techniques such as um, mass spec, um, Mm -hmm. which is where you can sort of compare the amounts of the um, NAD in the sample compared to what we call standards, which are known amounts of NAD. Um, And these, these are not simple techniques. These are quite advanced laboratory techniques that you you need a good setup and you need to know what you're doing to be able to measure this. So yeah, unfortunately companies that are, you know, saying they can provide this service at the moment, I'm I'm quite skeptical of, of what they are actually measuring um but it is it would be good if someone could develop something to be able to Mm. test it easier because it is such a critical molecule we know it declines we know we want to boost levels back up to youthful levels so if there was a way of easily measuring this it would be brilliant
0: yes indeed i mean it'd be so nice to have a little finger prick that you do with measuring your blood sugar but uh we're, we're pretty far away from there so far so thank you for that description uh how I was just curious a few things. How long from the time it's drawn and put on ice does it take to prepare the cells before you can cryogenically freeze it? Is that like 10 minutes, a half hour, an hour days?
1: Your optimum time would be looking at about 30 minutes. Um, And so we've done tests to look at the, you know, what happens to the NAD and blood samples if you just leave it on the bench <laughs> um, mm-hmm. or if you leave it in ice. Um, and you can see quite rapidly after this time, it, it does really start to degrade. So you'd be looking at, you've got like about a 30 minute window to get this done.
0: Okay, so thank you, thank you for that uh, backstory. Uh, and this is so important to understand because if you're interested in AD, you have to know this part of the equation because if you don't, you're gonna get a lot of misinformation. So I'm curious from your perspective, how many, you cannot get this test on at Quest or LabCorp or commercial laboratory. This is a laboratory research assay only. So how many labs in the world do you think can make this, do this assay uh, accurately?
1: So I think, you know, a lot of labs can do mass spec. They can do the way that the blood extractions, they can do the um, the, the mass spec readings of the NAD samples. The, the bit that's the sort of missing link is um, being able to offer this off-site. So the key bit is that, yeah, as long as you've got the people in the lab who know what they're doing and you have the person coming to the actual lab to get the blood taken and prepped immediately, then it is entirely possible if you have people that specialize in, in that laboratory technique. Um, the, the caveat is actually, you know, people don't want to be going to an academic lab <laughs> um, to go and get some bloodstone. And I certainly don't think academics will want random people turning up um, to get the bloodstone. So it's trying to find a way to commercialize it to some way to kind of... um preserve the nad or you know some way to really quickly prep it off site and and then transport it to the lab and um, is kind of the missing link at the moment
0: yeah yeah so all right well that's good to know and it's really an important part of the equation when you're seeking to optimize NAD, because many of the studies that are out there uh, are based on like flawed information from my perspective but let's go into the details now of how your body makes NAD. And I think uh, you can not only makes it, but how it's depleted in in your body, which is a good part of the equation. Yes. You want your body to produce it, but it's a dual equation. So the total NAD, the net is a sum of what your body makes minus what it loses. So if you can really limit how much is being lost, you can maintain your NAD levels. And, and sort of an artifact of this and, and, and an aspect I'd like to di- dialogue with you about is the observation that NAD tends to decrease with age. My guess is that's only partially related to metabolic issues and more likely related to lifestyle issues. But, but before we dive into that part of the conversation, why don't we talk about the, the, how your body makes and loses NAD?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what's becoming increasingly apparent as there's more research done on, on this role of NAD in the cell is that it's incredibly complex. And it's not just a simple case of, um, you know, adding two things together makes more NAD and, and that's the end of it. It's It's very, very complicated. So within the cell, There are five different what we would call um, precursors that NAD can be made out of. So these are like the raw materials that your body uses to manufacture NAD because NAD is quite a big molecule and it can struggle to get over some cell membranes and into the cell. So the cell likes to make it inside the cell where it's actually needed. So what it does is it effectively ships all this raw material into the cell and it actually um, assembles it Inside the cell. So basically, you've got five precursors. So you've got the, the B vitamins, so like nicotinic acid, nicotinamide, and um, then you've got other um various other precursors such as nicotinamide riboside, nicotinamide mononucleotide, or NMN, which some people might be familiar with if they've took NAD supplements. And once these are inside the cell, they enter various different pathways, which then assemble them into NAD. And there are three main pathways. Um, The most important pathway for NAD production is something called the NAD salvage pathway. And this is because not only can it make NAD from these external raw materials that come into the cell, but it can also recycle NAD as it is broken down. Because a key thing that many people don't realize is that when NAD is being used up in all of these beneficial processes in the cell, such as in DNA repair and activating other cellular pathways like the sirtuins, it actually gets broken down and it gets broken down back into one of its precursors. And that is nicotinamide. Now, instead of this nicotinamide. Or or
0: niacinamide same way same.
1: Thing. Nick, same thing. Nicotinamide and niacinamide are the same thing. they, they can use, be used interchangeably the names. But the key thing is that this is what NAD gets broken down into when it's used up in the cell. So the cell is really clever because what it's evolved to have is this salvage pathway that is actually a recycling pathway for this nicotinamide. So it means that when NAD is used up, it gets broken down in nicotinamide and this nicotinamide then just gets recycled straight back into fresh NAD again, which makes absolute sense because why on earth? would the body want to rely on generating such critical molecule using Mm. external precursors? It needs to use something endogenous, something that it's always going to have a ready supply of. And this also means that as demand for NAD goes up, technically that means as the NAD is broken down, there's more raw material that can simply get recycled straight back into fresh NAD again. So this has been demonstrated to be the most important pathway for NAD production in the body so that's the sort of production part that's what happens when we're young you know we've got this abundant supply of NAD that's continually being recycled via the salvage pathway but unfortunately as we get older NAD declines and the the two main reasons for this are firstly more NAD is actually used up So we we can go into all the different reasons, but, you know, the lifestyle reasons and things like that. But ultimately, more NAD is used. And when more NAD is used up, that means more really needs to be recycled to replenish this NAD. But it's been found that that salvage pathway, that critically important NAD production pathway also declines with age. So right at this point in your life, when you've got this increased demand for NAD, you've also got this reduction in the body's ability to regenerate it via this recycling route. So when you put those two things together, what you get is an exponential decline in NAD, which is exactly what we see in human tissues. Throughout life, we look at about a 20%, sorry, a 50% reduction in NAD levels in our tissues every 20 years which is quite shocking considering how important it is to our lives.
0: Yes, indeed. And NAD deficiency is, uh, can be terminal or fatal. And uh, it used to be pretty common, actually, at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and it's known, it has given a name. It's actually known to be a niacin deficiency but, uh, or nicotinic acid. Those are two are also interchangeable. But uh, the name uh, of the disease is pellagra. Basically, yeah. niacin deficiency, and you'll develop a dermatitis or a skin rash, a diarrhea, dementia, and death mm-hmm. from not enough vitamin B three. So, uh, is so you definitely need it. And I'm convinced, and we can have this discussion too, that part of the reason that there's that people are more susceptible to dying from SARS-CoV two would be an NAD deficiency. So this is good to keep up for a lot of reasons aside from longevity. Uh, it'll keep you alive a lot longer. So I'm curious, I, I, is the another molecule in NAD, aside from the, the, the vitamin B3, would be, is it, is it true that ADP is part of that? ATP. No, ADP, ADP.
1: ADP. So it not directly. So the, in that's more looking when you're looking in the redox reactions. So in the redox reactions where NAD is acting as a, you know, moving the electrons around, it's not actually getting used up in that sort of role. The more critical role where it does actually get used up and it causes its decline is actually when it's acting as a cofactor for Mm -hmm. other enzymes so things like the sirtuins things like the mm-hmm. dna repair enzymes it's almost acting act as a fuel um, mm-hmm. in that role and it actually gets degraded and declines whereas in its role in energy production it just flips between states so the the okay. overall amount's not so, really so changing when,
0: when it's being consumed as a fuel and we'll talk about those two enzymes that consume it then it then the uh, adp is is liberated from the molecule
1: Well, well, when it's literally, yeah, it's just broken down. It's just split back into some of its original components. Okay, good. So
0: why don't we talk about the two primary enzymes that consume it? Because understanding what these enzymes are could help you or significantly help your strategy to make sure that you're maintaining healthy NAD levels.
1: Yeah. So the two main ones are a DNA repair enzyme called PARP or PARP1. So, as we get older, we have um, increased levels of DNA damage in our cells. And, um, you know, this is caused by you know, in our skin by continually being exposed to UV radiation. It's caused by our metabolism, which is constantly producing reactive oxygen species, which is damaging our DNA. It's caused by our bad diet. It's caused by, you know, just living and breathing. And So our cells are continually damaged. This causes DNA damage. It accumulates as we get older, and this DNA damage has to be repaired. And one of the key enzymes that repairs this damage is called PARP1, and that's a DNA repair enzyme. And for that enzyme to work, it uses NAD as a fuel. So it literally takes NAD, breaks it down to to form its reaction in the DNA repair action. And then it moves off, gets another NAD molecule uses that one, breaks it down. Um, So what you see is that if you've got increased levels of DNA damage in your tissues, you get increased activity of this um, enzyme and you get NAD depletion. And there's been some studies that have shown that if you have a lot of DNA damage in a cell, it can deplete the NAD level in that cell to about five to 10% of what it started at very, very quickly within five minutes. So wow. that's it. That's a huge, huge decrease.
0: Now, now I, I've done some previous work with uh, my interest in EMF and PARP activation was a real important factor. And and from the papers I reviewed, it seems like every time PARP is activated for DNA, DNA repair, it consumes 150 DNA mo- or uh, NAD molecules. Is that consistent with what your understanding is?
1: Um, I, I'm not 100% sure that it's that much in for the PARPs, but I know that there is another enzyme called CD38, um, mm. and that one definitely does consume about 100 molecules of NAD for every cycle of its reaction. Um, so CD38 isn't a DNA repair enzyme, but that is in a, It's um, another cell signaling enzyme which in, is involved in sending these calcium signals throughout the cell to activate uh, parts of our immune system. Now CD38 is is perhaps the biggest nad consumer in the body because of the fact that it is so inefficient at using nad like you said it takes a lot of nad molecules just to have one cycle of its reaction to set off Mm. its cell signal and cycle and it's been found that actually even if you can inhibit cd38 by just a very very small amount you can actually have a significant impact on nad levels because it is so inefficient So this CD38 molecule um, has been demonstrated to actually increase the, the expression of it increases on the cell surface of our cells as we get older. And this correlates really nicely with the decline that we see in NAD levels. So putting the combination of more DNA damage as we get older, which is activating the PARP DNA repair enzymes, that's using NAD, combined with higher levels of inflammation as we get older, which is well known, which is activating CD38, which is also chewing up loads and loads of NAD. You can very quickly see why we end up in this situation where NAD is declining. And then just couple this with the fact that it's very well known that our salvage pathway doesn't function as well as we get older. And you can soon see how you know we're in a bit of a sticky situation as far as NAD production is concerned um, as as we're getting in into the older decades of our lives
0: okay so thank you for that primer and uh, many people understand this and have been exposed to this information before and that's sort of is the but i wanted to get everyone up to speed for those who haven't now that we're at this point uh those who have have come to that understanding, uh, clearly want to make a, a, a change to improve their health. So they they seek to improve their NAD levels. And the two most popular strategies are, are nutrients that uh, you previously recommended as the precursors. And those would be um, nicotinamide riboside and nicotinamide mononucleotide, or NR and NMN. Uh, and there's a lot of people taking these and you, thought that there was likely a better strategy to do this. And I used to take them, but when I did take them, I realized right off the bat that swallowing them was a bad idea. It's kind of like swallowing uh, bioidentical hormones. Yes, it's the real deal when you swallow it, but your liver has this tendency to want to detoxify and typically conjugates or adds in in these molecules, specifically methyl groups so that it can can excrete them. Uh, And these don't work too well. So it never really transfers into your blood the way it was supposed to, which is the main problem. But some get does get through. But you think there's a better way? And you were convinced from your study. So why don't you explain what you uncovered?
1: Yes. Well, when we started looking into NAD, um, the first thing we did was was look at, you know, what evidence there was there that you you could use molecules or supplements to boost NAD. At that time. And everyone, as he said, was looking at enhancing NAD levels with nicotinamide riboside or nicotinamide mononucleotide, which are the the precursors or the raw materials that the body uses to make NAD. But what there was definitely a lack of was any evidence that the reason that NAD was declining was because the body had a lack of availability of these precursors. In fact, still to this day, there's no evidence that, you know, our bodies have like a reduced capacity to absorb these or that they, Mm -hmm. um, there's a reduced amount circulating in the plasma for the cells to use. So it was actually like, well, let's take a deeper look at what is actually causing this NAD decline or the root causes of this NAD decline. And when we looked into this further and over the last couple of years, all of this more, um, more understanding of NAD decline has emerged, it's clearly now demonstrated that actually to um, restore NAD, you need to fix the root causes. So you need to fix that salvage pathway. You need to increase the enzymes in that pathway that are actually declining with age so that your body can recycle NAD like it did naturally when it was younger. You also need to look at these processes that are quite frankly wasting NAD. So you need to look at inhibiting CD38 and stopping this chronic low-level information that's that's using up all this NAD. You also need to actually look at Um, reducing DNA damage and, um, you know, being more efficient in its repair. So you haven't got these constant chronic activation of DNA repair, which is also using up NAD. So we all we said, look, let's let's take a multi-target strategy. So rather than just putting more raw material into the cell, let's actually look at fixing the cell. Because I always, you know, get people to think of the cell as like a factory and get people to think of if you had this cell, that's this NAD production factory and production in the factory declined and you knew it was because the machines were broken and the workers weren't there and the pipes were leaking, would you, as the owner of the factory, just say, well, just order more raw material and, you know, (laughs) somehow we'll get more nad out the end um and that's exactly what i sort of compare a precursor approach to it's completely ignoring what is actually causing the decline mm-hmm. um and yeah so that's that's when we started saying let's let's look at this differently and in experiments that we've done um we've demonstrated that you can boost nad levels in the cells without putting any precursor in so you can actually just use ingredients that you know inhibit cd38 Activate NAMPT, and they will actually boost NAD levels without having to put any any raw materials in there.
0: All right. So I don't think you previously mentioned, but NAMPT is really important because that's the bottleneck, the rate right limiting step enzyme for the production of NAD. So why don't you expand on that?
1: Yes. So the reason that the salvage pathway declines with age is because of this one key enzyme. So NAMPT actually recycles nicotinamide and converts it into NMN, which then gets converted back into NAD. And as you mentioned, the rate limit and steps, so the bottleneck in that process is NAMPT. And lo and behold, that is the key enzyme that declines as we get older. So, you know, there've been studies that have been done and they've demonstrated that you get around a 50% decrease in this in- enzyme between the ages of 45 and 60 so Mm -hmm. that's a significant decline considering how important this is in your NAD production and the decline in the levels of this enzyme again correlate with the decline in NAD that we experience and many sort of diseases and and issues that are associated with NAD decline are actually because of a reduction in this enzyme. So it's absolutely critical um, to try and improve the activation and improve the actual expression um, of this enzyme in the body to contribute to enhanced um, NAD because it worked brilliantly to give us high NAD levels when we were younger. So why not restore it back to that?
0: Yes, indeed. So Focusing on the NPT, you've got a fifty percent reduction over a fifteen-year period from 40, 45 to sixty. Uh, but it's worse than that. So because you've got the CD thirty-eight levels and in, uh, increasing and PARP activation being going along with, uh, so that synergistically contributes to the decline. So I'm wondering, you mentioned the decrease in the NPT, uh, but what is the decrease in NAD, the functional thing that we are experiencing in society? So what what are the typical levels you find at a 40 year old, maybe 20, 40, 60 and 80 year old, if you, you know, or around there, whatever numbers you have access to, because I think that will, that will help people understand because my understanding is that, you know, you get 90, 95% reduction as you age in any youthful levels.
1: And I think that the best way to sort of visualize it, because sometimes numbers don't really mean much mm-hmm, to people, mm-hmm. but it's, it's looking at it more in the fact that it literally decline is declining from the, the day you're born. <laughs> um, so, you know, within the first 20 years of your life, you've lost 50%. So by age 20, 50% is gone. Then between age 20 and 40, you've lost another 50% of that 50% that you already had. And then oh. it keeps going down. So if you, if you look at the curve, it's, it's, it's an exponential curve. So it's starting very, very steep and, you know, like that. So um, it's, you know, looking in elderly people's tissues, they really, really don't have very much left at all. And again, that, I just find that incredibly frightening because it's yeah, yeah. so important.
0: Absolutely. And this, I think this is one of the reasons why people, elderly people are so susceptible to COVID. Uh, yeah. Uh, th- th- no, one, no, I've never seen anyone or study recommend this as a comorbidity, but it's just it's there. It's probably the primary one.
1: Have you seen there is a paper that. Oh, that's OK, I did out, not but, see
0: it. OK, tell me the paper. Yeah. So actually, <laughs> okay. I mean,
1: there's a couple of reviews and there's One paper. So um, the, it's been demonstrated that inf- infection of cells with um, with the, the, the covid, uh, the SARS-19 uh, virus, basically, it actually causes a huge depletion in NAD levels. Um, and it does this by really overactivating the PARPs. No, a part, okay. um, yeah because the, although you've got part one that's involved in dna repair some of the other part and um, mm-hmm. it's a big family of proteins right. they're actually involved in in, in inflammatory responses um, mm-hmm. and as part of their activation process they obviously need nad ah, to do that okay. Um, so there's a huge depletion in nad levels in infected cells so the sort of running theory is that If we're older or sicker, and we have lower levels of NAD to begin with, when we get infected, we're already at a lower starting point. As opposed to someone that's younger and healthy and has high NAD, means that when they get infected, they've already got quite a good level to begin with. So even when they get that depletion, um, they can actually get by because they weren't, you know, they had adequate supplies to begin with. The other really interesting thing from this research is that. What they've looked at what the cell does in response to the virus to try and mitigate this and all of the um, genes that the cell upregulates to try and um, protect itself are all to do with NAD salvage. So it actually increases the expression of NAMPT. So the body is going to try and increase NAMPT to try and protect itself because it Mm. knows that's the best way to produce its NAD and then rectify the problem. So again, that just emphasizes the importance of that pathway in the body. Even the body (laughs) is is trying to rescue it and switch it back on at its time of need. Um, So that's, you know, that's incredibly, um, you know, it makes perfect sense you know what you say about older people and the comorbidities yeah.
0: well um, and the reason I, I wanted to get the the numbers out there was because um we'll get into this in a bit and with respect to what these interventions do in producing and increasing nad levels but if you don't know what the story is as you just so eloquently explain that a 40% increase may seem like a lot, but the reality is you got to get like a thousand percent increase before it's going to be clinically significant because it's almost irrelevant to double or even triple it sometimes when you when the level is so darn low to begin with.
1: Yes, exactly this. And I think this is one of the issues why. So, in the preclinical studies, so in studies involving um, like mice and cells, et cetera, um, it was found that the, the benefits of NAD restoration um, in terms of what the clinical outcome was, so in terms of actually reversing disease and, you know, actually really improving health span were great. There's, you know, there's a huge amount of evidence to show it can reverse metabolic disease, insulin resistance, obesity, it can regenerate organs, it can, you know, protect nerve damage, it has function in Alzheimer's, loads of preclinical data that show that NAD restoration is a very, very good thing to do. However, the studies, I think there's been about 10 studies to date in humans using NR, haven't Mm. been as as brilliant, shall we say, the results? Um, you know, they haven't been able to replicate many of the actual um benefits that were shown in preclinical mod- models. And mm-hmm. I think this this really is because NR and other precursors simply aren't really addressing the root causes of NAD decline. So as a result, they're only really reporting about a 40 to 60 percent increase in NAD levels. And mm-hmm. the question is, like you say, is that enough? to actually mm-hmm. translate to some health benefit that you can perceive and feel or measure. Um, and I think as we move forward, actually looking at strategies, which, not only use a precursor, but use a precursor alongside a CD38 inhibitor an NAMPT activator um things looking at reducing a, a DNA damage, things like that, and, and use more of a whole systems approach. I think that's when we'll actually start seeing some real, you know, translating to some real clinical benefit in, in these actual human studies. Cause at the end of the day, we wanted to work in humans.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you, um, uh many people may have missed what you said, but you did, or what you didn't say, you talked about a CD8, CD38 inhibitor, but you didn't talk about a PARP inhibitor and PARP inhibitors actually exist. They're used in treating many cancers, but you did not mention that. You mentioned minimizing PARP activation, which I think is a hundred percent correct. So why don't you explain why we don't want to inhibit PARP and, and then maybe some of the consequences of, of inhibiting CD38, because I'm not, I mean, it's not as dangerous as inhibiting part, but we can discuss mm. that.
1: Yeah. And I think this goes back to this idea of um, the body is very, very complex and we can't just single out very specific um, enzymes or targets in the body because there's always a consequence of, of what you do on the whole biological network. So, yeah a uh, PARP is a DNA repair enzyme and DNA repair, despite it using a lot of NAD is actually critical. Um, every day our cells, each cell is being exposed to tens of thousands of pieces of DNA damage. And if we let that happen and we didn't have these DNA repair enzymes, we would get cancer. Um, so it, this is absolutely not something we want to inhibit. Now you mentioned that are PARP inhibitors and, um, these are actually used as a cancer treatment. So the idea behind these is that cause cancer, because cancer cells are actually replicating really quickly, they end up accumulating a lot of DNA damage. So what the cancer cells actually do is they upregulate POP so that they can keep on top of this DNA damage um, and, and survive. And uh, what these drugs are designed to do is to specifically target cancer cells, knock down DNA repair, so they accumulate too much damage where it sort of kills and wipes out the cancer cell. But as with any cancer treatment, you've got the problem that it also affects healthy cells as well. (laughs) Um, So it's it's kind of.
0: Kill yes. the cancer cells before your cells,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's certainly not the type of treatment you want to be taken when you're healthy and um, right. to try and improve your health span, so I think you know you've got to again look at a bit more of a holistic approach in that well, why is all my levels of DNA damage increasing as we get as we're getting older? like what can I actually do to reduce the levels of DNA damage um you know, higher up in the chain, um, if, if you want to put it that way. Um, CD38, so that's a perfect example of, yes, um, you can inhibit CD38, and it doesn't have as big consequences inhibiting it apart, but at the end of the day, CD38 still does have a function in increasing um, immune activation, which again is critically important. Um, I think the thing with inhibiting CD38 is you don't need to inhibit it that much to actually have an effect because of the amount of NAD it uses in one cycle. However, CD38 is known to be increased unnecessarily with age because of this chronic low level inflammation that we have, this inflammaging um, that it's sometimes referred to as. So if you can find a way to actually get in control. Your inflammation or your inflammatory levels in the body, then you're ultimately going to be helping your NAD levels.
0: I am sure you've been asked this question before, but why don't you give us your perspective on that pathway? Because it's it historically been been used and promoted for people with drug dependencies, like or alcoholism, and it seems to be work quite effectively. But doesn't mean it's the only way to achieve that. So I'm sure you have some views on it.
1: Yes, so IV NAD is an interesting one. Um, it's something where there is a lot of anecdotal evidence um, of people saying that it works for various different things. However, the evidence, um, the published evidence, is is actually very thin. There's not much out there. Um, one of the arguments against IV NADs is that it doesn't. NAD is a big molecule, and it struggles to get into the majority of cells, which um, as far as I can see from the literature at the moment is still an issue. However, there are some cells that NAD does definitely get into. And these are the the neuronal cells. They have um, CX43 channels, which Mm. allow um, NAD to pass in. So it could be that some of the beneficial effects that people are feeling are because it's actually getting into the nervous system and into the the neurons. So especially when you're thinking of things like addiction, et cetera, that could be the mechanism, mechanism of action there. But one of the things that I always talk about is no matter how you are planning to boost your NAD levels, whether that be, you know, take NR, take NMN, do an IV infusion, if you don't have an effectively functioning salvage pathway, it's a waste of time because what it means is say, take the IV example, you are paying a lot of money to have this lovely pristine NAD put into your cells it gets its first pass. So it gets used by the repair proteins, et cetera. It gets broken down into nicotinamide. If you don't have that salvage pathway working, it's going to get excreted. Whereas if you had the salvage pathway working, it could actually get recycled and used again and recycled and used again. So you would get a lot more longevity, pardon the pun, out of your NAD infusion or out of your NAD supplement, if you can actually fix that salvage pathway.
0: Yeah, and I I want to put this into a different context too. And the amount of NAD your body needs per day, it's uh, probably a few grams. But or I you know you can tell us what that is. But from my memory of it, it's like upwards of ninety nine percent of that gets recycled through the through the salvage pathway. Ninety nine percent. So if your NAMPT is inhibited or impaired in some way or form, you're that's going to radically impair your body's ability to maintain healthy levels.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's absolutely fundamental to it. Um, and it's not surprising that a lot of um, diseases that are associated with low NAD are actually due to reduced NAMPT levels.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so that's what you focused on. And I think you've found a good thing. So I found a good approach to do this. And why don't you share some of the data that you've accumulated through your studies and using a validated way to accurately determine what the true NAD levels are? Because again, that is enormously challenging to do.
1: Yeah, so the the initial pilot studies that we did, um, the benefits of having actual, using actually, um, you know supplement molecules that already have good safety profiles it meant we could go straight into humans and which again is is where we want to be measuring the beneficial effects so our pilot study we took two human volunteers we actually did quite a comprehensive study where we hooked them up to a cannula and so we were actually taking blood samples every two hours to measure you know really robustly what was happening to the NAD levels over the time um, of taking the supplement and this was for a period of 16 days and we found that using this multi Targeted approach um, of of really addressing the root causes of NAD decline with multiple different ingredients, um, we could actually boost NAD levels by an average of 242% over. The period of 16 days, which is, you know, it's significantly more than the 40 to 60% that's being demonstrated with precursors. And as I mentioned previously, we demonstrated that um, this formulation was indeed boosting NAMPT levels. And the other thing we measured were activity of the sirtuin enzymes. So the sirtuins are um, almost the key effectors of the benefits of NAD because they use NAD to switch on and off lots of genes involved in longevity and again we demonstrated that um you know prior to using the supplement they were effectively switched off and uh, using the supplement increased the activity and expression of these enzymes so we've since actually this well this was long before COVID, and um, started a, um, a much larger study of um, 28 people, which is a double-blinded placebo-controlled crossover study, um, you know, so taking an element out of that rigorous um, testing that I've been brought up with in, in drug development, um, and that is all tied up and all finished now, and we're hoping to be able to publish the results of that very soon, um, so that's exciting for
0: us. Have you unblinded yet? Do you have any idea what the it, results
1: are? It's not unblinded yet.
0: Okay. All right. Well, look forward to seeing those results. So that's yeah. great. That's really good. So um, I'd like to get back to um, adding the synergistic stri- lifestyle strategies that I mentioned that could also activate NAMPT. And we had discussed this offline before. Uh, the uh, once an, an, A strategy that I'm Very, very fond and passionate about, which is exercise, because that has been uh, a well-documented strategy Mm -hmm. to also increase NAMPT, and uh, not only that, but uh, well, I think yeah, uh, fasting will do it too. So those are two well-documented strategies that will also increase the AMPK. Uh, And is it is it the a is it is this just associated? Moves in the same direction. So, what AMPK is increased and AMPT is activated, or is there a causal relationship there?
1: Exactly that. Yeah. So, the energy stress basically um, upregulates the activity of AMPK, and then AMPK then goes and activates NAMPT, and then that okay. increases NAD.
0: So, it's causal. Yeah. So, there's yeah. anything you could do to increase AMPK. So, the two, my two favorite strategies and ones I use almost every day are. The exercise and in the a time restricted eating, which is a form of intermittent fasting, so perhaps you can comment on those. And if you and if you're aware of any of the literature that looks at NAD increases directly or NAMPT uh, activation, which would be easier to measure and probably probably better better uh, studied at this point.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it is a lot easier to measure, um, and and you know, like like I said before, it is well correlated with um, NAD. Um, decline or increase depending on which way the enzyme goes and um, so yeah there have been studies especially with exercise um, that have demonstrated that you know not I think it was about three weeks of resistance training and um, so relatively short um, period mm-hmm. of time and amount of training and um, resulted in an increase in NAMPT levels which which actually resulted in turn and I think it was about 100, I want to say 127% increase in NAD levels.
0: Mm-hmm. So again,
1: that's like way better than NR <laughs> yeah, um, not, or not previous quite as, or
0: alone. Yeah, not quite as good as the ones you see. So and, and actually, the, good. <laughs> yeah, and when you, the, the the data you were reporting earlier with that was for 16 day trial with two people, right? And yeah, over 16 days, but in the two hours, were they hooked up to an, uh, a catheter do your blood measuring every uh, we, two hours for 16 days we,
1: yeah we just put a cannula in the back of the hand and then drew oh, okay. blood samples off every two hours for 12 hours throughout the day on the on the testing
0: wow. day um, and <laughs> perseverance for those yeah it was they were
1: they were very good to have done that um but um the the larger study that with there's no way we would have been able to do that with a bigger group of people so um they were um a month um worth of um, supplement and uh, measuring their nad levels once a week
0: oh once a week big difference big mm-hmm. difference but yeah. more, obviously uh, less costly and easier to do so yeah um all right well that's good so uh part of the reason i've been passionate about nad well actually let me just uh trail back to the part uh my Gaston, yes, my best strategy for inhibiting PARP is one that's not very popular, but I think really important. And one that we didn't have to worry about last century for the most part, uh, which was limiting your exposure to EMFs, because I'm convinced that that uh, really activates PARP quite extraordinarily, especially in almost anyone who's in an urban area, unless you're taking hyper diligent
1: uh, mm-hmm.
0: actions to limit their exposure. Which is beyond pervasive. Cell phones and Wi-Fi routers are the two most common contributors. So that's my strategy because you know I think you're absolutely on target. You've got to limit PARP activation and, and CD38 uh, inhibit it in some way if you can or limit it. Uh, and do you have any other strategies to to inactivate PARP or not? It, it limit its activation.
1: Again, I, th- I think as, as boring as it sounds, it is, you know, the lifestyle um, <laughs> side of it, um, because if you can limit the amount of DNA damage um, that's happening, ultimately PARP naturally will not be activated as much. Um, so, so, you know, like with the EMFs, but, you know, other things like, um, you know, UV exposure and mm-hmm. um, all of the usual things that we're told. To well, avoid, like, which- like cat skins. Yeah. X-ray, anything like that is, oh, you yeah. is causing DNA damage.
0: Yeah. So one of my other passions, though, is, is the one that you're involved with in, is biogerontology or longevity work. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons I was so interested in AD. But another biomolecule that's really important, and I'm not sure which one is more important. It's hard to tell because I don't think there's any, been any head-to-head studies, but it's FOXO3 or FOXO3A. And um, that is another incredible biomolecule and it's been associated. uh, I think the study showed that that interestingly, your body has an ability to upregulate this gene. And there's many poly or SNPs or polymorphisms that that have that. And it seems that in populations that have a higher expression of VoxO3, they live, they have a 2.7 times, 270% increased likelihood of living to hundred. Yeah. So it's it's associated pretty strongly with being a centenarian, uh, and uh, you know it's the, it's a master regulator. It 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 also activates DNA repair. Now I, I'm not sure exactly how it does it, but it does it and increases antioxidant genes, uh, improves autophagy, and it has impacts on the immune system and stem cells. So I'm wondering. If you could comment as a molecular biologist, uh, the connection or the relationship between FOXO3 and NAD.
1: Yeah, so so FOXO3, um, like you say, is is w- almost like one of these wonder molecules in the body yeah. that is so associated with longevity, as is NAD. The kind of difference between them is, is the way they work. So, mm-hmm. you could probably describe that NAD is more of a signal and molecule because mm-hmm. it's, its levels and its ratios um, basically turn on and off other things, whereas FOXO3 is what you would call a transcription factor. Um, so what tran- this tran- transcription factor does is it binds to specific areas on your DNA and then it, it initiates the transcription or the, um, you know, these genes being turned into proteins that then actually go and have an effect on the body. Um, and the reason that FOXO3 is thought to be um, so influential in longevity is, is that it's it's kind of, it's like its location and its proximity to particular genes that are involved in longevity that it can activate when it's switched on so you mentioned it's like a you know a master regulator and what it's a master regulator of is basically our response to stress so it's it's so critical in the response to multiple different types of stress everything from energy stress Um, to like hypoxic stress or like lack of oxygen, um, lack of nutrients, uh, DNA damage, and any of those things um, ultimately can lead to the activation of FOXO3, which then goes off and sets off the transcription of genes that are designed to alleviate the stress or protect from the stress or just basically so that the cell can survive through whatever period of stress it is by activate, activating appropriate genes to do this.
0: Okay. So with the NAD, it's a fuel for PARP. And my understanding of the way PARP works is that, well, its, a, it's a technical name is poly ADP ribose polymerase. Mm-hmm. So it takes the ADP from the NAD and this makes this matrix of. of uh, ADP molecules, which somehow is, and I don't really understand it, but it forms this matrix which facilitates the actual DNA repair enzymes. Because I don't think the PARP actually repairs it. It sort of sets a substrate for other enzymes to come in and do their work. Is that right?
1: Yeah, exactly that. It's called a power relation uh, mm-hmm. reaction. And mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like tagging this idea of almost tagging where the damage is so it's like mm-hmm. alerting the rest of the cell that this is this is where the damage actually is is occurring and it needs to be fixed um yes. so yeah that's exactly what happens. so the,
0: fo- the foxo3 is a transcription factor it actually turns on the enzymes that the PARP would set up, set up to actually work so yeah work-
1: so um foxo3 is um actually involved in sort of like there's a few different types of DNA repair enzymes. So there's not Mm. just PARP. There's multiple different ones. There's, you know, ones called XRCC1, which um, repairs like a a different type of DNA damage. Like sometimes you get what are called single strand breaks or double strand breaks or Mm. where the the DNA is being swapped around and it needs to be repaired um, in a different way. But what FOXO3 actually does is it almost activates proteins that are are like the DNA damage response proteins. So um, they're like alerting the cell to to, to basically coordinate this response of all different proteins and all different enzymes all coming in and having their own little role in fixing the DNA repair, whether that's literally fixing it or providing this scaffolding so that the DNA repair enzyme can like lock on and then do the repair um effectively so so when you're looking at at DNA repair you know FOXO3 is um the sort of main links are that it's almost coordinating helping to coordinate this response but also it does a lot in terms of preventing the damage in the first place Mm -hmm. so a lot of damage um from a DNA damage can be caused by oxidative stress in the cell um, through one thing or another. And um, there's been lots of links between um, FOXO3 and its ability to activate lots of factors that actually limit oxidative stress so that you don't get that DNA damage um, in the first place. And just going back to what you asked before, as I realized I didn't mention it, the sort of link (laughs) um, between FOXO3 and NAD is that as well as FOXO3, being directly activated through various types of stress um, it can also be activated indirectly via nad so what happens is say ah, you have energetic stress mm-hmm. um, nad goes up nad activates cert one and one mm-hmm. of cert one's downstream targets is FOXO 3 yeah. so it actually it, it activate nad activates FOXO 3
0: terrific terrific and, and it may seem like an Intellectual curiosity, but it actually ties in really well because it would, if your goal is longevity, and I think that's, you know, not, it's not, my goal is just not to increase NAD. We want to increase health span, as you mentioned earlier. So it would seem wise to integrate the lifestyle interventions. And interestingly, fascinatingly, the body's so wonderfully put together that if you target activating FOXO3, you will increase NAMPT because they're the same darn strategies. Same (laughs) darn strategies. Identical. Whatever you do to increase FOXO3 increases NAMPT. So what are those? Exercise, as you mentioned. But heat stress. Sauna. That's why I do sauna three or four times every week. I used to do it every day, but that was too much. So four times a week, typically. And in addition to that, being in cyclical ketosis does it that will increase Foxo three, and as I mentioned earlier, the ECGC. So it's which is in your your supplement. So all of those things work. It's it's totally compatible and synergistic, and they, and they work to to improve the body in all these different variety of ways.
1: Yeah, and you know what I always like to say is is like you know we're coming back to this now where we're like it's all linked
0: yeah <laughs> and it absolutely is, and, you know
1: everything's so complex and if there's one thing for improving longevity i mean there isn't the whole point is there isn't just one thing um it's a combination of things that need to be done to have the best chance of improving longevity because aging is a huge complicated mess of all sorts of things that are going on and actually the best interventions that we have are the things like you know calorie restriction and exercise because they are like right at the top of this pyramid of complexity that is biology you know they're the things that are actually hitting the, the top layer and then that filters down to you know getting to the bottom where there's a foxo 3 or a you know a cert or a, an individual protein but really you've got to kind of go in nearer the top and um, to have those maximal effects
0: yeah we we didn't talk about senescent cells but many people are familiar with them those are cells that stop replicating and produce these inflammatory molecules That really contaminate the cells around them and and sort of essentially (laughs) cause them to become senescent. So, ideally, you want to have a process activated to remove those because Mm -hmm. I think that decreases NAD levels too, these senescent cells. Yep, it does. Yeah. So, my strategy. Is to also is activate autophagy, which FoxO3 does. But so what I, what I've done, I'd like to get your feedback on this to it Because it's sort of integrating everything I, I've learned into a, a lifestyle strategy. So I do the intermittent fasting for of uh, sixteen to eighteen hours typically. So I stop eating at three or four o'clock, and then I'll work out in the morning at seven, uh, about six or seven, seven o'clock in the morning. And uh, so I'm, I'm exercising fasting. And then right after the fa- after the exercise, I jump into the sauna. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I think that the, you know, so you're getting the, you're getting the exercise, you're getting the ketosis and you're doing it in a fasted state. So you're reactivating even more autophagy. So I, I just think it's just a winner to do that. Cause I mean, exercise is good. It, the, the studies you quoted with the increase didn't really look at the timing of the exercises, you know, timing is critical, but I think if you do it while you're fasting, you're going to get even more benefits because you do, you know, it's just going to activate NPK even higher.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all of the, the times that these longevity proteins and these, these proteins that are absolutely critical to health span are upregulated is in response to cellular stress. Yeah. you look at every everything it's always it's counterintuitive because you think well why you know why would stress be a good thing on the body but it's this idea of hermesis that you know our body is actually um reacting positively to this stress to be able to overcome it make our bodies and ourselves more resilient so that if we encounter the stress again we're almost prepared for it um so yeah you know one one of the things we talk about with with our our supplement is actually people say well when when do you want to Take it and we say, well, you know, if you're, if you're fasting, you know, finish your fast, then take it because your fast will have activated AMPK. And as mm-hmm. soon as you start eating, as soon as any food goes into your body, it's going to down-regulate AMPK. However, in the supplement, you've got AMPK activators. So it's kind of mitigating that decrease that you're mm-hmm. going to get and trying to just keep it, keep it up as long as possible.
0: Yeah. So there's no real reason or benefit to take it when you're fasting because you're already up. Yeah.
1: We would say just after to try and prolong the effects of the fast, even when you're not actually fasting anymore. That's
0: a good strategy, especially if you integrate it with the lifestyle strategies,
1: Mm. you know,
0: uh, that the challenges, as you mentioned earlier, is just unless you're you've got a relationship and you leave not too far from a research laboratory that measures this you're not going to know you're just going to have mm-hmm. to sort of trust that it's going to work but i guess uh maybe you can share some of the anecdotal uh observations for people who have taken it that but not getting test done the testing to, to document either the increases of any MPT or nad
1: yeah so the the main we have top three things that people always report back on uh the first is energy levels which is not surprising whatsoever given the, cre- the key role mm-hmm. that nad has in the body and um, of producing our energy and um, people from enough always describe it using the same sort of language it's it's not of like an energy where they feel like wired and like caffeined like caffeine. up, and um, it's more of they say, you know, we just had had a lot more enthusiasm about the day, about you know getting on with things rather than procrastinating and you know not really having the drive to to get on, and um, which is funny because the very first two people that did that study that was what they said they said we've got more get up and go and when we did a study with them when we give them a placebo and they didn't know they said this isn't the same stuff (laughs) (laughs) because we can feel it Um, it, yeah yeah, and, and that was you know they were right but um uh yeah so the other thing is not just like physical energy but mental clarity and focus so um we'll get a lot of reports um, of people, especially people who've been suffering from brain fog. So a lot of perimenopausal and menopausal women, um, it's very big with where they'll say, we didn't realize how much brain fog we had till it was gone. Um, So, you know, that actual mental focus and clarity and just not having that fuzzy brain all the time. And the final thing, which actually we haven't spoke about today is sleep. Um, Mm -hmm. So NAD um, is actually circadian and it's cyclical, which is, why when we did our first um, trial, we measured every two hours to check that we were measuring real increases in NAD and not just to, um, you know, a, a natural fluctuation throughout the day because it, yeah, it does go up and down. Um, and, um, you know, having, as you get older and the NAD levels decline, the peaks and troughs of of NAD um, actually hamper your circadian rhythm, which means your sleep quality isn't as good. Um, and yeah, a lot of people report back to say that actually their sleep has improved dramatically And a lot of our customers' track with things like an Aura ring or, or various other watches and and uh, monitors for their sleep, so they've you know they've actually got some data to, to show to say look, you know you can see the difference, um which which is always nice, um yeah, yeah. so they're they're the, the the three main things, um and the other thing which we always get reported, <laughs> um is skin hair and nails which is cliche as it sounds for anti aging the amount of people especially men actually, (laughs) um, who report this is, is really fascinating. Um, but again, it, you know, it's, if you've, if you've got the cells running well and the Mm -hmm. fundamental critical parts of the body, it's that's when you start noticing the more, you know, things with your hair and the less important parts of the body, as far as your physiology is concerned.
0: Well, I've got a new indication for you.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: Long haul COVID. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes well this is something where you know we are really interested in um because of the the papers and the studies that have come out um it, it you know yeah
0: because it makes perfect sense and i mean but it's it's a real problem i think we're going to see a lot more of it not only people with the infection but also through the beginning of the jab so their mitochondria become damaged because they've been exposed to the spike protein that causes it's a toxin it's a poison it's spike protein it's not something that be given to anyone and as a result, there was complications. But you need strategies to remitigate, mitigate, remediate it actually. And this could be a, a useful one to impre- increase it in the NPT levels and the secondarily the NAD.
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be a really exciting area of research to follow. And I'm sure there'll definitely be some more studies coming out on the links, you know, the links between NAD and COVID. Um, I, I would be very surprised if there's, we don't see anything within the next couple of months. That's new.
0: Well, great. So uh, any this has been delightful. Do you have anything else you'd like to add?
1: No, I, that's a, it's a really good chat. I love getting into the, you know, the complexity of the science. Because I think it is, you know, although not everyone's a scientist, I think it's really important to understand why we're doing the things that we're doing, and actually what they're doing within our bodies to have the beneficial health outcomes that we're looking to achieve.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I really want to thank you for taking the time to help and enlighten our audience about these really important strategies uh, that can have a powerful influence on your life. Because I mean, you highlighted very well, the Radical absolutely radical and shocking surprising exponential decline that we have in NAD levels from from early early uh, early on so you know it, it really makes a lot of sense I think we you know the, the the science has helped us understand some really powerful strategies interventions we can do to address this and secondarily you know give your body what the raw materials it needs and it knows how to stay healthy you just got to I activate the factors that, that, that it wants. And once you understand that it's a pretty simple strategy. So, you know, mm-hmm. your supplement can be clearly one, but the exercise, the, uh, the fasting, the ketosis, these are all powerful interventions that, that don't cost very much at all. and can have radical improvements and add many, many years of not only just years, but, you know, vit- years of vitality and resilience where you can really enjoy your life.
1: Yeah, no, I am a huge advocate of all things, you know, a multiple strategy, it's got to be a multi targeted approach, whether that's in the cell, or, you know, or with our, um, our regimes that we're following, (laughs) you know, you've got to be doing multiple different things, if you really want to have a good go at it. It's very, very important.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and all the work you're doing. It's been great.
1: No, thank you so much. Thank you. That was really good.